Thank you, Barry. Worship team, band. Good morning to you. We we'll turn your Bible to 2 Samuel, chapter 23. We'll be looking verses 8 to the end of our chapter. Just to let you know the plan. We have two more weeks. That is the plan. Things can always change. Two more weeks in Samuel. And then we will be going to the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And so please be praying about that, the preparation for that, and praying that God's people, their hearts will be prepared for that word from the Apostle Paul, his letter to the Ephesians. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for that blood that has been shed for each believer here. It is by that blood that we can approach a God who is infinite in holiness and righteousness. And yet through that blood and through the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are justified. We are declared forgiven, not guilty. It's just if, if we never sinned, but it's just if we obeyed the law as well. And we come to you through the Lord Jesus this morning and we come by the spirit of the Lord Jesus and we ask that you would glorify your name in the sanctification of your people as they hear this word preached. And Lord, if there's any here today that have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that they would hear that gospel today and repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have their sins forgiven. And we ask these things in the name of our Christ. Amen. Well, if you've ever been to the tomb of the unknown soldier in Arlington National Cemetery, it's likely you have seen the changing of the guard there. Uh, these tomb guards are quite remarkable soldiers. They are selected from the 1st Battalion of the 3rd U.S. Infantry, also known as the Old Guard. Now these soldiers, they're humble men. They, they will not wear rank insignia when they are marching, when they are there guarding, because they don't want to outrank any potential unknown soldier. Uh, they're required to do remarkable amounts of memorization. They have to memorize 35 pages verbatim of information about Arlington Cemetery, and they have to have some 300 tombs memorized, not just the location, but the names of the people uh, that are there. As the guard patrols this particular tomb of the unknown soldier, he takes 21 steps. The reason he takes 21 steps is this alludes to the 21-gun salute. On the 21st step, he then turns and transfers his gun to his out shoulder, his, his outside shoulder, and then he counts 21 seconds and then takes 21 more steps. And he does this repeatedly over and over again. These guards are completely dedicated to their duty, their responsibilities. In fact, it's an honor for them to keep watch, to stay on guard no matter what the weather is. No matter how hot it is, no matter how cold it is, they don't show any signs of discomfort. In fact, famously in 2003, uh, Hurricane Isabella came through D.C. Trees are falling over and the guard remained on his post, dutiful, committed to his responsibility. Now the tomb is guarded 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and there has always been a guard on post every minute of every day since the year 1937. And they do this because they believe, they feel rightly, that these unknown soldiers deserve their best. It's utter commitment. It's utter discipline. Now, their commitment is not to a king. 
Their commitment is not to any kind of eternal thing. It's a commitment to unknown soldiers who gave their lives to secure the freedoms, the ideas, the democratic ideas of our nation. Now, as, the, as noble as these soldiers are, and they are very noble, today, in 2 Samuel 23, starting in verse 8, we see something even greater in David's mighty men. That's how the, the Scripture has described them thus far, David's mighty men. And we're given a glimpse today of a greatness that can only derive from the grace of God. It's a grace-driven greatness, a grace that reflects itself, that shows itself in utter sacrificial devotion to the Messiah King, who at this time in, in history was David himself. Now, here's a main point I want us to think about today. Just as we see at the very beginning of Genesis 1 that God creates what he commands. Now, what do I mean by that? When God said, let there be light, guess what happened? There was light. He creates what he commands, and he does that spiritually as well. So when he commands us to repent, God the Spirit uses that word to come to bear on our rebellious hearts, and we repent in a way that does not take away human agency, human volition. But God's authority comes to bear on the sinner's heart, and with that command to repent, with that command to believe, he creates what he commands. That's why scripture says faith comes by hearing and hearing what? The word of Christ. But I want you to think about something else as well as we look at this text today. Not only does God's word create what it commands, it also conforms us to what it positively characterizes. The word of God conforms us to what it positively characterizes. Now, what do I mean by that? So, in Scripture, if you see a man or woman of God acting with grace and kindness, we read that in the Word of God, and the Spirit of God works kindness in us. When we see someone show some great act of forgiveness to someone who doesn't deserve it, we read that, and the Spirit of God works that capacity forgiveness in us and what we're going to see today is something very noble these mighty men who are so devoted to their king to their messiah king that they are willing to sacrifice anything for his sake and the kingdom's sake and that brings us to the first part of this passage we begin with the very best, the three, David's most powerful warriors. Now, before I get into that, David had a group known as the 30. There were actually more than 30 in the group, but it was called the 30. And, and so these 30 were akin to what you might call Jesus' disciples. Jesus had 12 disciples. And so David had 30, but then he had three. Just as Jesus had three, three intimate disciples, David had three who were the most mighty of all. And we read about them starting in verse 8 and taking us through verse 12. Notice with me in verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashabeth. Now, you've got to pronounce these correctly or you're going to miss the point of the text. <laughs> Actually, the Hebrew, the original Hebrew, does not have vowels. And so we can't be completely sure how these are to be pronounced, all right? And that, that takes a lot of pressure off me. <laughs> Josheb, Bashabeth, Atakamunite. Now, I, I, evidently, I mispronounced a corn last week. So if I can't pronounce that correctly, God help us with this. But notice, he was chief of the three. I love that. 
So David had his 30. He had his three. And then he had the chief of the three. And here we have this man presented first. Now, we've already read about his mighty men. Chapter 10, verse 7. Chapter 16, verse 6. Chapter 17, verse 8. Chapter 20, verse 7. We have read about David's mighty men. And we've also seen David described as a mighty man in 2 Samuel 17, verse 10. And you could apply that text to every single person listed in this chapter. But then we read about three who stand out. And what's remarkable, you know, in a world where, especially in, even in the Christian social media world, where, where people try to, I see a lot of Christian leaders, it appears they're trying to make a name for themselves, brand building, building a platform. The only thing we know about these three that are first mentioned is they were loyal, sacrificially devoted, to the king. That's all we know about them. And the chief of the three is here in verse 8. Last week, my firstborn son, Nate, had his birthday. And as I've been meditating on this text, it, it made me regret not naming him Josheb Bashabath. <laughs> we have a sixth child that may be. Or maybe I should have named him Eliezer. Look with me in verse 9. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the son of Ahoi. Now, notice here in verse 9, he was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. So the Philistine threat was such that everybody else withdrew. It says the men of Israel withdrew. But notice in verse 10, not Eliezer. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. It's almost saying as if that his hand was so attached to that sword he couldn't detach it. His hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. Now keep in mind, the reason this is describing these men to us is because... He conforms us. God the Spirit conforms us to what He positively characterizes. All right? He wants us to be more like the mighty men. That's not natural to us. We're not born into this kind of mentality. We have to be born again into this kind of mentality. And then, even then, we need sanctification to grow with this mentality. And so we're reading about history, real history. But this is a word to us. And notice, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain after Eliezer had done his work. So how inspiring it is when a believer refuses to succumb to unbelief refuses to go with the majority while others are falling away. That's Eliezer. That's his, God's word to us with Eliezer. Now, more details are seen in the Chronicles account with Eliezer about this particular situation. In 1 Chronicles 11, verse 13, it says, He was with David at Pas Damin when the Philistines were gathered there for battle. So that, that's this very account that, that Samuel is referring to. There was a plot of ground full of barley. Of course, that would have been very precious in an agrarian culture. It had been like a bank, all right? And the men fled from the Philistines. All the men fled. They saw the Philistines coming. 
But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and killed the Philistines. And notice, just as this text tells us in 10b, the second part of verse 10, the Lord saved them by a great victory. And that line right there in the Chronicles account and our line in the second part of verse 10 is critical. The Lord brought about a great victory that day through this one man who refused to capitulate to his unbelieving brothers and sisters. Now again, this text is driving home the compatibilistic relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, what does it mean when I say the word compatibilistic? Well, you know what the word compatible means. Uh, If you're married, you probably heard your marriage counselor ask questions about how compatible you are with your future spouse. We know what the word compatible means. Well, there is a compatibilistic relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God is sovereign over all. There's not one speck of dust that God is not completely sovereign over. And yet, that does not in any way demean or undermine human responsibility and agency. And every believer, I think, must recognize this. Lest we despair in times where there is less apparent fruitfulness, are we swell up when things are really going well? It was the Lord who brought about this victory. As mighty as Eliezer was, it was the Lord who brought about this victory. Well, notice in verse 11. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. Again, in an agrarian culture, this is like going to a bank. Very important to the economy. Very important to the well-being of the people. And the men, again, notice, fled from the Philistines. Out of unbelief, out of fear, out of lack of trust in the Lord's provision and protection. They fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And notice for the second time in our text, the Lord worked a great victory. Now, Lehi was situated in the foothills of Judah near the territory of the Philistines. Now, if you remember, if you've ever studied the book of Judges, and if you've studied Judges, you've certainly uh, studied the, the account of Samson. Well, Lehi was made famous in Judges 15 in the account with Samson. Lehi had been attacked by the Philistines centuries earlier in Judges 15. And the result was that Samson was handed over. He was delivered over to the Philistines. But they got the wrong guy because he then killed 1,000 of these Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. And now, centuries later, these Philistines have come back into Lehi and they were set on pillaging a ground full of lentils and so intimidating were they, and, and we, we, we understand this better than we've ever understood it here in Louisville. There, there are people in this city who want to do harm, okay? They're, they're trying to bring about a revolution. It's rooted in Marxism, who taught, Marx taught that revolutions require blood, and whatever it takes to bring about a revolution, you do it. If that means destroying property, if it means killing people, murdering people, you do it. It's worth the cause. We understand the fear of that. And these people, they recognized how dangerous the Philistines were. 
and they fled. But not this man, not Shema. He didn't flee. But again, don't lose the main point. The main point we see for the second time here, the Lord worked a great victory. And that's so critical for us because a common response for believers is to see the needs, to see the responsibilities of kingdom work, and to say, I'm insufficient, I'm inadequate, or in some cases to respond with fear. I can't go to this place. That's a dangerous place in our city. I can't do that. But again, notice in the second part of verse 12. It is the Lord who worked this great victory. And I think this also brings up a very, another very important point. The true measure of all of our achievements is how they relate to what the Lord is doing in the world. So you could be doing good things in this world, benefiting the city of man, but if what you're doing is not motivated by making, to make God's name famous in the world, to reach sinners with the gospel, then it may burn up in the day of judgment. I believe that the majority of human accomplishments in this world are actually in defiance of God. So there's been great strides done in medicine. We're grateful for that. There's been great strides in medical science or even technology, and we have benefited from that. But if the people behind those advances aren't doing these things for the glory of God, actually what they're doing is in defiance of the living God. No different than the Tower of Babel. And so what we have to ask ourselves every day, why am I doing what, am I, what I'm doing? Why do I go to work? I don't love my job. But do you realize if you do your job for the glory of God, God's glory is in that. No matter how trivial your job may seem to you. And so what we see here are men who are devoted to the king. We need to understand that only when our achievements impact the kingdom of God do they have any lasting value. What did the psalmist say in Psalm 127? Unless the Lord builds the house. And that house is a metaphor for any human endeavor. Unless the Lord builds a house, the laborers labor in vain. Now, in verse 13, a new section begins with a discussion about three more men. They're different than the official three, all right? Um, these were three of the 30. And in fact, we're not even given their names. These are anonymous men in verses 13 to 15. Again, if fame is what mattered to God, we'd be given their names. I'm reminded of the, the man who was famous in 2 Corinthians 8 for preaching the gospel. That's what it says. It said he was famous for preaching the gospel, and yet we're not given his name. So he, he's the anonymous famous man. A successful life is not about making a name for yourself. If that mattered, we would be given these three men. We'd be given their names. But they are honored for what they did. Now notice in verse 18. Now, verse 13, rather. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam. Now, this may have occurred in 1 Samuel 21. We don't, we don't know that for sure. When a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim, David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. Do you remember Bethlehem? Bethlehem was David's boyhood home. The name means the house of bread. 
And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. So this took place during a time when David was taking refuge in this cave of Adullam outside his hometown of Bethlehem. And evidently there was a Philistine garrison that was set up in his hometown of Bethlehem. Of course, we know what the significance of Bethlehem centuries later. And, and this aggravated David's spirit. Notice in verse 16. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines. And so David is longing from water from a well in Bethlehem. These three men hear him thinking out loud. And they broke through the camp of the Philistines, no matter what the danger was, drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord. Doesn't tell us their reaction when he did that. But they did it as unto the king. And if you're doing it as unto the king, you let the king do with it what he wills, right? Uh, that, that should be the case in every situation we face. If we're doing it as unto the king, then no matter what the response is, that's okay. We're doing it as unto the Lord. So the text doesn't tell us their response. But what's going on here? Well, David recognizes here that they had risked everything to get him some water. And he says that meant that the water was as good as their blood. Scholars say that he's probably alluding to Leviticus chapter 17. Eating blood was forbidden by the law. And the fact that they were willing to risk their blood to secure him some water was as good as their blood to him. But this had wider implications for David. Because the law that prohibited eating blood also forbade men from being bloodthirsty and prohibited the king from sending men to risk their lives for the sake of personal gain. But I think there's something else going on here as well. And it's this. David, the Messiah King, with all of these promises given to him, does not even have control of his home, his own home childhood city. Ed Clowney, who has since died, but who was a tremendous scholar, especially in the area of biblical theology, says this. He knows, that is, David knows, that God has made him to be king over all the land, but he cannot even control his own hometown. He cannot even go to the well of his own hometown to get a drink of water. It did not mean that they did not have any water where David was. They could not have had a strong point without some source of water. He's saying there that where David was in Adullam would have required them to have some water where he was. On that hot afternoon, however, when David was thirsty, he was saying in his heart, O oh Lord, when will I prevail? When will your promises be sealed to me? When will I be able to go again to Bethlehem and drink the water from that familiar well? Of course, there's others, and I, and I, I won't go this far, but it is an interesting point. David is thinking in terms of those promises and in particular of a son who would come and save God's people while he's hiding in a cave. And so perhaps he's looking to Bethlehem and wishing for the living water that may come from Bethlehem in time. I think we're pressing it too far. But I had to say it. That's a, that'll preach, even though I'm not sure it's 
exactly what he's thinking. But what David recognized with his longing for this water from Bethlehem was that his longings are not ultimate. And that's why he pours out the water. I think what he's saying is that only the Lord, only Yahweh is worthy of this kind of sacrifice. He's not worthy of this kind of sacrifice. Only the Lord deserves this kind of devotion. And so when these men risk their lives and their limbs to procure him water, he is saying, I'm not worthy of that. Well, that brings us to verses 18 to 23. Now he's thinking in terms, the writer, of the 30 men. And then of these 30, there were two chief leaders. Notice with me in verse 18. Now Abishai, we've read a whole lot about him, right? The brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the 30. So let's... Let's summarize. We've got the, the intimate three, and then you have the 30, right? He is the chief of the 30. You might say, so he's number four. You got the three, and then you got the chief of the 30. That's, that's Abishai. And he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. So he was the baddest of the 30, but he did not attain to the three. And so it was Abishai that went down with David who offered to kill Saul when it appeared that God had delivered Saul into David's hands. Later, he had assisted his brother Joab in pursuing and killing Abner in revenge for the death of their brother Asahel. He had been the one who offered to silence Shimei. Remember when Shimei was cursing David and Abishai reasoned that headless men don't curse kings. And so he, he offered to take off his head. And we have also seen that David put him in charge of one-third of his army. We saw that in chapter 18, verse 2. And da Abishai had saved David's life. We saw that in chapter 21, verse 17. And scholars believe he had saved David's life more than once. Now notice verse 20. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzil, a doer of great deeds. What a wonderful thing to have put on your tombstone. A doer of great deeds. It's interesting, again, we don't know anything about these men. These men don't have genealogies. These men are not patriarchs of the nation. They weren't from well-to-do families. These men were known for one thing. They were mighty for the king. Mighty for the king. And God the Spirit is working in us and saying, you need to be more like this. You need to wake up from your slumber. You need to wake up from your boredom and your listlessness and your indifference to the things of God. That's what he's saying to us as we read about these great men. He was a doer of great deeds. Now, he's the chief of the bodyguard. We're going to see that. But more importantly, he's the doer of great deeds. And three deeds, representative deeds, not the only deeds, three representative deeds are laid out that Benaiah accomplished. First of all, he struck down two aerials of Moab. Have you ever struck down an aerial? Facetious question. And the reason for that is because nobody knows what an aerial is. 
uh, it's a transliteration of a Hebrew word that no really one, no one knows what it is. The original readers would have known what an aerial was, but we don't. But one thing we do know, it was a great deed. And he killed two of them. Some say that it's perhaps a transliteration for the word in Hebrew for lion. In this case, it would have been two men who were lions of men. Because he, notice the second thing he, does, he did. He actually killed a lion. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. He killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day, likely to protect the people of God. And so the king of the jungle, he goes into a pit on a snowy day, horrific circumstances, a dangerous place, a pit with the most dangerous animal conceivable. And Benaiah walks out of that pit and the lion doesn't. All right? And it was on in the most difficult of weather that you can imagine. Why is the text giving us this? We're so filled with excuses. We're so filled with excuses why we are not completely devoted to the king. This man goes into a pit on a snowy day and takes on the most dangerous animal in the animal kingdom. It's one of his great deeds. The third deed we see, and this is interesting because I don't think the ESV gets it right, but we'll read it. It also says that he struck down, verse 21, an Egyptian... A handsome man. Now, you're probably asking yourself the same question I asked myself all week. What does that mean? Why does it matter that he was good looking? Well, the Christian Standard Version, I think, gets it more accurate. There's a semantic range to this Hebrew word. He was an impressive man. And in the First Chronicles 11 account, he was a man of great stature. And so it's likely he was kind of like a giant. All right? That's probably a better translation of what we see here. He was a giant. And so in several ways, notice it says the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand. I love this. And he killed him with his own spear. So he took that spear out of this impressive man's hand and he whipped him with the same spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the 30, but he did not attain to the three. Those three are receiving special honor for their utter and unique devotion to the king. Well, scripture is teaching us here that you can have faith and then there are people who have greater faith. And out of that greater faith comes greater commitments. And what God the Spirit again is doing in us, He's conforming us to what He positively characterizes. He did not attain to the three and David set him over his bodyguard. But it's remarkable how his great deeds, Benaiah's here, mirrored David's, which reminds us of how a righteous king stamps his image on his people. All right? A righteous king stamps his image on his people. When people are under the rule of a righteous king, they become more like that king, in other words. So in this particular case, we see with Benaiah, like David... He killed lions. Before David ever was anointed king, he was a shepherd. And he killed lions to protect the sheep. All right? So like David, he killed lions. Like David, he killed a giant. In David's case, it was a Philistine. In Benaiah's case, it was 
an Egyptian. And like David, who took the sword of Goliath and cut off his head with it, he took the sword of this Egyptian and he killed him with it. He has become like his king. Well, that brings us to the extended list of the 30 in verses 24 and following. I'm going to give you about five minutes on each one of these names. Just kidding. We don't know anything about these names, but we're going to read them. And here's the reason we're going to read them. The same reason the guards honor the unnamed soldiers in Arlington. They're worthy of honor. All right? Azahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. So we knew, we know that there were three of those brothers that were actually nephews of David. Azahel, Abishai, and Joab. Elhanan, the, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Jamah of Herod. Elika of Herod. Helez, the Paltite. Ira, the son of Ikesh of Tekoa. Abiezer of Anathoth. Mabunai, the Hushathite. Zalman, the Hoite. Maharai of Netophah. Helab, the son of Bana of Netophah. Ittai, the son of Ribai of Gibeah of the people of Benjamin. Benai of Pirathon, Hidai of the brooks of Gosh, Abaalban, the, the Arbathite, Asmaveth of Bahurim, Eliabah, the Shalbanite, the sons of Jashthan, Jonathan, Shama the Hararite, Ahiam, the son of Sharar, the Hararite, Eliphalat, the son of Ashbah of Makkah, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel of Gilo. Hizro of Carmel, Parah, the Arbite. Igal, the son of Nathan, of Zobah. Benai, the Gudite. Zelak, the Ammonite. Naharai of Beeroth, the armor bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruai. I hope God's not letting us listen to me pronounce these names in heaven. But notice in verse 38, Ira the Ithrite, Garib the Ithrite, and then notice verse 39, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. Again, the 30 was the name of the group. That was just a round number. There were 37 in all. Now let me ask you a question. Do you recognize the last name mentioned? Do you think it's a coincidence that the last name mentioned is Uriah the Hittite? So you have this list of names of, God, of David's great mighty men. And then it ends with the elephant in the room. For those of you that haven't been here, Uriah the Hittite had been murdered by David. David had had an affair, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And then he had Uriah placed on the front lines of battle, ensuring his, his death. So why does this list end with this last name? You could say if it's a coincidence. I would say there's no coincidence. The Spirit inspired this list of names. What this is telling us is that David is not the ultimate Messiah King that Hannah spoke of so many years earlier when she spoke about a king coming who would be the deliverer, the Messiah. Remember when David poured out that water, he knew what he was doing. He was saying, I don't deserve this kind of devotion. I don't deserve this kind of sacrificial act. Only the Lord deserves this kind of devotion. And in Jesus Christ, the son of David, we have him. In other words, 
if David was worthy in some way of such noble, sacrificial devotion as shown by his mighty men, how much more worthy is the one in whom he points? The text is telling us that as committed as these men are to this flawed king, how much more should our commitments be to a greater king? Maybe you're familiar with the, the kingdom list, and scholars call them the kingdom list. You, you see them in the New Testament in Romans 16, Philippians chapter 2. You see it at the end of Colossians. These are called kingdom lists. These aren't lists of military special forces. These are lists of men and women like you and I. Common, everyday Joes who were just committed to the king. So there's Epaphroditus. In Philippians 2.25, here's how Paul... I'm just giving you some select samples here. Paul's fellow worker and fellow soldier and minister to Paul's need. A man, an average man like you and I, but with a commitment to the king, a greater king than David. Or Colossians 4, Epaphras, a servant of Christ Jesus, always struggling on your behalf. Remember, the text conforms us to what it positively characterizes. He has worked hard for you, Paul tells the church at Colossae. How about Romans 16? It's a remarkable chapter there. Romans 16, 3, Prisca and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila, but in the ESV it's Prisca. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life. These weren't apostles. These weren't elite, super hero Christians. They were Christians like you and I who'd been captivated by a greater love. Mary, verse 9 or verse 6, who worked very hard for you. That's all we know about Mary. Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Verse 12, Perses, who has worked hard in the Lord. These kingdom lists at the Romans 16 and Philippians 2 and Colossians 4 function like this list in 2 Samuel 23 functions. It drives home to us that the Lord uses common people who love their king. He uses common people who are devoted to their king. It also reminds us that the, that the Lord watches even servants giving cups of water in his name. Isn't that what Mark 9.41 says? But again, this is not the gospel. This is the fruit of the gospel. No one goes to heaven by their commitments. Our commitments are the fruit of another one's commitment. So this list of names gives us, portrays to us what commitment and devotion to the king looks like in some way. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that there is a king who does this kind of radical devotion for those of us who are anything but mighty men. All right? He does it for us. And he didn't just put his life in jeopardy. Like those three unnamed men who, who passed through the Philistine camp to get David water. He gave his life. And he didn't give it for his friends. He gave it for his enemies. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans chapter 5? In other words, when you consider... The second part of verse 10 and the second part of verse 12 where it says the Lord delivered these people. And when you consider the fact that you cannot separate what we just read today with what we read last week. And what did we read last week in chapter 23 verse 3? We read about one who will come who will rule justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. 
And through his ministry, he will dawn on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. David is prophesying of that day. When you consider those realities, we're reminded that there truly is a mighty man. A real mighty man who is devoted to us. Isn't that beautiful? As devoted as these flawed men were to their king, such that they're described as mighty men, we have a mighty man who is completely devoted to us. And that is our hope in times of peril, in times of trouble. And may God the Spirit conform us to this mighty man. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. We see it even in texts that just focus on names. We thank you for these names. We thank you for the challenge these mighty men give us. We thank you that your spirit works to conform us to that which you positively characterize. But we thank you ultimately for the mighty man who came on a rescue mission. And he didn't just endanger himself. He was put to death. And he was put to death to take our greatest problem, which is not our physical danger. Our greatest problem is our sin and our guilt for a holy God. And he took it. He received the just judgment for our guilt, for our sin on the cross. He satisfied your wrath on sin for us who are anything but mighty in our natural state. And he was raised that our record might be changed from sinful and guilty to righteous and forgiven. And then he sent his spirit and His Spirit has come to indwell us and to conform us into this mighty man. We pray that he would do just that for the people of God at Fisherville. And we pray that there's any here today that have never trusted in the mighty man, the Lord Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. We ask these things for his name's sake. Amen. As we go, let us meditate on a glorious text from Romans 16. And may we recite that passage together. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Amen. To the only wise God be glory forever. Through Jesus Christ, amen.